good Friday morning, and welcome to the second season of the Schmore Reinhard Employment Law Podcast, episode number one. Now, as with every episode, I will need to remind you that the information provided on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Instead, all information provided on this podcast is for general information purposes only. Due to the timing of recordings or the ever-changing nature of the law, when you sit down and listen to the podcast, the episode may not constitute the most up-to-date legal information. Good Friday morning, and welcome to the second season of the Schmoyer Reinhard Employment Law Podcast. President Biden is expected to sign a bill from Congress that would end forced arbitration on sexual assault and sexual harassment claims. Real briefly, arbitration clauses in the employment realm are usually an agreement that an employee will sign when they're hired to a job or that is somewhere in their employee handbook or separately that they agree that any disputes they have with the employer of certain natures will be hired by a private party, usually run by a private organization, whether it be AAA, the American Arbitration Association, or JAMS, or some other entity, and that they're waiving their rights to a jury trial. Um, it, it usually has limited uh, rights to any forms of appeals, and those decisions are generally private, and those, gener- those decisions are generally final. Sometimes when the employment manual is updated, by the nature of the update in the manual or the language related to arbitration clauses, they can renew a new arbitration clause, or they can start one mid-shift while they're employed at that current employer. The arbitrator, though, acts as the final decision maker in the capacity of a judge and often are retired judges or former judges, and their decision is ultimately final with very few exceptions. Now, the statute that we're discussing related to mandatory arbitration clauses is titled Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act. The United States Senate approved a bill that Joe Biden is anticipated to sign that would ban employees from being required to settle sexual harassment and sexual assault claims in arbitration without the option of filing a civil lawsuit. So as I indicated, the arbitration clause is generally you're waiving your right to a jury trial, and that would include a right to file that civil lawsuit to seek damages in that jurisdiction. This bill indicates specifically that can no longer be once signed, and it is anticipated that it will be signed. What's important about this consideration is the fact that you have an arbitration clause already in place, one that was signed by an employee before this law was passed, will not protect it from claims filed on or even after the effective date of the new law. So it will be effective in a, in a capacity that is retroactive. This bill is a shift in some of the ways that sexual harassment claims are being handled in the workplace, but it's not the first one. Actually, the state of Texas had one of the first cases or bills to pass related to sexual harassment and how they were changing, how those were being not only investigated, but also in the number of employees an employer had to have. Last year, Governor Abbott signed a bill indicating that it was no longer a requirement that there must be at least 15 employees under Chapter 21 to file a claim in the state of Texas against an entity for sexual harassment. 
Now, traditionally, there's an issue for an employer that has less than 15 employees called a numerosity issue. Under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, under Chapter 21 of the Texas Labor Code, and under several other states and their statutes, there are limitations on filing claims if an employer has under a certain number of employees. Under Title VII, that number is 15. Uh, it used to be under Chapter 21 of the Texas Labor Code, it was if you had under 15, you could not bring a claim against that employer specifically for harassment or discrimination or certain types of retaliation claims related to that harassment or discrimination. That is no longer a thing in the state of Texas. Um, as a result, I think that we should all be watching not only how some of the shift in how these sexual harassment claims are happening, but I think advocacy, advocacy groups for disability rights or the race rights, national origin rights, age rights, um, religious rights, those types of groups, I think, will be wanting to come to the table and say, hey, this shouldn't just apply to sexual harassment. This should also apply to protect these other protected characteristics. So I think we should all stay tuned, pay close attention, and see how that helps um, employers to have a better idea of how it will impact their workforce and to keep update with the law accordingly. In the meantime, employers should review and revise any of their arbitration provisions or clauses in employment-related agreements, whether that's in non-solicitation, non-competition, non-disclosures, and other employment agreements that are used with the company. If an arbitration clause attempts to mandate arbitration for sexual harassment claims, a court could invalidate the entire clause, an outcome that is not actually clear yet. Um, to that extent, severability clauses are always significant, and reviewing your language of your clauses on an annual basis, if not more frequently, is never a bad idea, particularly with updates that are coming through the pipeline. And what would be a podcast without a brief update on COVID-19 vaccinations and testing? Now, last month, the Supreme Court had split decisions related to OSHA's ETS and also to CMS's interim final rule. Very briefly, in the split decisions from the Supreme Court, when analyzing OSHA's ETS, it was determined that the mandate exceeded OSHA's statutory authority and was otherwise unlawful. The court contended that because administrative agencies are created by statute and only possess authority provided by Congress, it is expected that Congress will speak clearly when authorizing an agency to exercise powers of vast economic and political significance, such as OSHA's vaccine mandate. It did not see that the act plainly authorized the Secretary's mandate. Instead, the act empowered the Secretary to set workplace safety standards, not broad public health measures. This was the reason for the stay. Alternatively, in its other decision, Biden versus Missouri, the U.S. Supreme Court opined that Congress has authorized the Secretary of Health and Human Services to impose conditions on the receipt of Medicaid and Medicare funds that the Secretary finds necessary in the interest of the health and safety of individuals who are furnished services. The Secretary of Health and Human Services determined that a COVID-19 vaccine mandate will substantially, risk, will substantially reduce the likelihood that a healthcare worker will contract the virus or transmit it to their patients. The court further determined that the secretary routinely imposes conditions of participation that relate to the qualifications and duties of healthcare workers themselves. 
whether that be requiring staff to complete infection prevention and control for having certain types of training or supervising and also for using certain types of equipment. Now OSHA's COVID-19 vaccine and testing mandate for all employers with over 100 employees was stayed. As a result, the U.S. Department of Labor's OSHA withdrew the vaccination and testing emergency temporary standard. The withdrawal was effective January 26 of 2022. OSHA indicated on their website that although they were withdrawing the vaccination and testing ETS as an enforceable emergency temporary standard, they're not withdrawing the ETS as a proposed rule. Now, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS's rule, was upheld by the Supreme Court, and it does require participants in the, the Medicare and Medicaid program and those facilities to establish policy ensuring that eligible workers are fully vaccinated with exemptions allowed based on religious beliefs or recognized medical conditions. Some states had different deadlines on the rule as a result of litigation in the courts, including a lawsuit in the state of Texas. And most states have a deadline that has already passed. However, healthcare facilities in the state of Texas must ensure staff are fully compliant with the rule by March 21st. Now, keep in mind that healthcare workers are considered to have complied with the vaccination requirement as long as they have been vaccinated by the end of the deadline, not necessarily outside of a two-week waiting period required for full vaccination. Thank you again for joining us on the Schmoyer Reinhardt Employment Law Podcast. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Schmoyer Reinhardt, partnering with business.